Welcome to Literary Elixirs, where we match books with delicious food and drink. I'm Justine the Librarian, and I'll be chatting with various bibliophiles about their favourite recommended reads and just what elixir they'd choose to pair for a wonderful reading experience. This episode, I am joined by Leonie Durr, who for the last 20 years has dedicated her work life to serving and supporting community, particularly those underserved, underrepresented, and those most experiencing marginalisation. She's worked in public libraries for the last 14 years with the majority of her advocacy focused on amplifying voices of youth and young adults. In 2012, she received a substantial scholarship to travel the world, gathering evidence, doing research, and participating in work placements. Her research explored how physical space and place, architecture and its design, create an atmosphere that signifies inclusion or exclusion to young people, which sounds so interesting. Leonie has also used her passion and voice to share important and crucial ideas about radical librarianship, social justice having a place in libraries, the myth of neutrality and safety, amongst many other topics around the world, presenting at conferences and publishing papers. Most recently, she and four other library leaders wrote the paper, Who Do We Think We Are? Understanding Diversity in the Victorian Public Library Workforce. Leonie is currently on a sabbatical from public libraries, focusing on writing and storytelling to build community in her role as a content producer for a Fortune 500 company. Welcome to Literary Elixirs, Leonie. Thank you for having me, Justine. Thank you, thank you, thank you. On this lovely wintry afternoon here in Melbourne. Yes, yes over Zoom, of course, because we are being socially distant still. Yes, yes. That is such a wonderful bio. I thoroughly enjoy reading the bios, actually, of the people I am chatting with because quite often, I've known you for some time now, but quite often there'll be little, little things in there, nuggets that I am not aware of. And uh, even though I know you did receive a scholarship to travel the world, I didn't really, um, I wasn't quite aware of exactly what it was about. So certainly I knew it was to do with young people, but I think um, it's, it's just a really fabulous, um, fabulous thing to look at. Um, and you have such a great background in libraries and in advocating for young people. And so I, want to, I wanted to ask you what the project was that you were most proud of delivering when you worked in libraries. But you can take that really broadly as well if you wanted to, um, you could talk about the scholarship or whatever it yeah. is that sort of tickles I, your fancy. It's, and Justine, I feel like you're one of the few librarians I know who would get this. Like when you're really fucking passionate about what you do, you're just doing everything all the time. And until somebody asks you, what are you proud of? Or what, what did you actually do while you did whatever you did for the last 14, 15 years? You realize it'd be like 20 pages of like dot points of everything you did. Um, and I sometimes actually forget some of the stuff I did because you can't include everything in a resume. Nobody wants 10 page resume of all the projects you did. So you always pull out the best and brightest. Um, but yeah, like I just, I, I've done so much shit. Like, and I mean that in a good way, not, not like rubbish. I just mean like, oh my God, I've done a lot. Um, and I guess one of the things that really stands out, so therefore I'm proud, um, is the, the partnering and working um, as a public library service um, with the International AIDS Conference back in 2014. Um, and a lot of times the success of that stuff is really who you're working with. And I had connections within um, the gay community here in Melbourne that allowed me to be able um, to be known, I guess, by the, um, the health groups and stuff uh, around town that deal with people, um, that deal, just support and take care of and give advocacy around um, people living with HIV. Um, and yeah, that was pretty phenomenal. And I found out from the, the EO at the time of um, men's, oh gosh, Positive Health Victoria. I can't remember all that, all the particular 
government names, apologies to those organizations, sincerely. Um, but I, the EO at the time said that I was the first person slash we were the first public library to ever actually partner with the AIDS conference ever globally. And this conference moves around the world. And, um, and I, like, it just felt like it was so important to break down that, that barrier of what happens to people who are suffering essentially and kind of make that knowledge and make those stories common to everyday people. And that was pretty much the biggest part of it for me was how do we like bring these stories to the public like that, that wouldn't have access to this conference because they're not a medical student or they're not a doctor or they're not actually a delegate or whatever. Like how do we break that barrier so that people can realize there's a lot of stigma around HIV and AIDS. And there's a lot of stigma about queer people and just like just all of that stuff. And I really saw it as an opportunity um, for me to be able to use my position of privilege working in local government and all the connections I have. So um, events, connections at you know, the council, like new staff members like yourself, because you got pulled into it at the last minute when you first started working there, like just that kind of thing um, to just attempt to make as much um, offer. And the biggest, the headline event was um, the the panel that we did with um, guests from all over the world. And we had medical students there. We had people who were living um, with HIV or, or had family members and other people they knew that experiencing living with HIV. And it was just a really powerful panel. I remember being atrociously sick. Like I had a fever, like I had burnt myself out trying to make it all possible. And I had to be there. Like, I, and I'm so glad I did. Like, um, it was a really powerful um, and empowering uh, conversation at the end of the day with that particular panel. Like, this is what libraries are about. Like, it's about taking a stand and amplifying voices of people who are marginalized or discriminated against in society. And what a great space to be able to do that with, um, with the experience with the AIDS conference. So, yeah. Yeah, I feel like that particular event as well really showcased maybe an earlier version of what I think a lot of public libraries are doing now, which is um, putting the health and well-being of the community at the centre of what they're doing. And yeah. I think you see a lot more of that in the last two, maybe three years. Yeah. But certainly six years ago, that was possibly one of the first really and one of the first big examples of that as well. I think um, it's quite funny because I've heard like, you know, since then, um, because I think it was one of the first, it was easy there was no bureaucracy. It didn't, the only like bureaucracy is that people wanted it to be bigger than it should have been. But I think because it was so early in the piece, it's kind of like, you know how they always say, sometimes take the risk and worry about the consequence later, because sometimes the risk, the reward of the risk you took actually shows everybody it's worth it. And I feel like that's why nobody really thought twice about it. And I think that's why, um, you know, the events team at that council was so supportive of it because they just thought, oh, it's just more people helping us labor through events for the community. Like nobody questioned the value of it in terms of um, its risk, if that makes sense. Everybody actually thought this is, has so much integrity, so much worth, um, so much good that it can offer the community, especially around reducing stigma um, and especially around just education because a lot of stigma comes from lack of education, lack of knowing somebody or hearing someone's stories. Um, and now it's kind of a shame that in a way, yes, we've got more well-being and health stuff happening in public libraries and in the community sector, but at the same time, there's actually more red tape. Are we sure that's not going to offend this politician? Are we sure that like this particular group in the community is not going to like have a backlash? Are we sure that we're actually, do we really want to tell people that we're pro-marriage, like for all, all gender representations and all like, or you know what I mean? Like, it's almost like we're more, I feel like the communities are more progressive and demanding more from each other as humanitarians and as like, you know, in that space. And yet at the same time, there's now more red tape. So I think we were very, 
like you said, I think it was perfect timing in a way just to have something test the waters. Because we could talk forever about this. I'm going to ask my next question. Um, so the paper that you wrote on diversity in the work- workforce recently, I, I, I was aware that you were doing it and uh, I think it's an incredibly important topic. And I, I wanted to ask you what you thought were the key findings to come out of that. So just as a quick, like, oh, it's being currently edited and reviewed by Jalia, J-A-L-I-A um, journal. Um, so that will be great. It will be available for um, reading after publication. So congratulations to all of us um, in the team for making that possible. I think the majority of the key findings was we worked with a statistician. Basically, he helped us frame the questionnaire so that we would capture data that we could actually do research on and actually draw a conclusion from. And he said, as long as you get this many people responding, this minimum number, that's considered a good community response out of the number of all the staff members. I think there's like 1,200 to 1,500 people that work in public libraries or something. We got about 420-ish, 450-ish. So we did well, like well, well above the expected minimum. Um, but even then, uh, not enough people responded, I would say. So, you know, there's various reasons why that possibly happened but I like there I think you can take one of the first takeaways you can take is does this really matter to the average middle of the road person working in libraries do they really think about this stuff daily does the organization really help people think about this stuff daily do they really therefore care about this daily it's not to say that people that work in libraries don't care about their fellow humans but sometimes it's like it's kind of I guess really it's about looking at it from that bigger picture okay, quote unquote, like talking currently and of this times, I'm not a racist, quote unquote, versus I do anti-racist work. It's kind of like that. Like, um, I don't think anybody meant any harm by not participating, but I also think they saw it as, like they saw it and went, well, this doesn't have anything to do with me. My workplace is fine. Or my community, you know, sees us here and they love us. So it's fine. Like, I don't need to engage with this questionnaire amongst probably a ton of other reasons why people didn't take the questionnaire. It was school holidays or whatever, right? However, there is a comment in the lack of responses and where does that responsibility lie? And I think it goes back to the organizational leaders and people making these kind of things matter in conversation and turning it into true action. Um, another takeaway was that even though most people said they thought their workplaces were great, there was always a caveat. There was always a but or an and that came after. And often the but or and actually came from people who were not white female, middle-ish age. And when I say middle-ish age, I would guess somewhere between 35 and 50 um, who were able-bodied or heterosexual. So anybody who fell outside that heteronormative kind of like very middle-of-the-road description of the kind of people who work in libraries, male, um, gay, identifying, uh, not neurotypical. And one person actually made it clear that they've never spoken to any of their colleagues or the workplace that they are not neurotypical because they're afraid of the backlash. And they are constantly aware of the way that they speak and behave because they're so afraid people will find out and then therefore judge them. So there, there were, there was a lot of those buts and a lot of those caveats, which I think are really profoundly important because it makes you wonder how many other people actually feel that way, but are so kind of conditioned in the systems that we work in that they don't realize that they have power to use their voice because the organization has not taken the time to say that this matters or this is something we should be thinking about. Um, so I think that was the second takeaway is that people were all like, yeah, yeah, my organization is great and dot, 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 dot. 
um, because there is good work happening in libraries. Like the intentions are genuinely good. It's just there's always more that we can do. And we just made sure that throughout the paper that we we did a lot of research. We were expected to do a lit review. That was part of the scope of it. So we definitely quoted people like bell hooks and stuff like that because we realized this was a really important opportunity to talk about whiteness. And we realized it was a really important opportunity to talk about um, there being a notion of normal and everybody having to fit whatever that notion of normal was and how that that's quite dangerous in workplaces because people who don't feel that their voices are heard by default do not feel like they belong and therefore do not feel valued and therefore have a shit experience in that workplace but they're they put up with it because they'll probably have the same experience in the next workplace which is again fucking rubbish like it shouldn't be that way um so i would say those are the the kind of big takeaways i definitely encourage people to read it and i only say that because i think it's one of those papers that because we actually pulled out some pretty hard truths, like talking about bell hooks is a big fucking deal in a like public library, like generic research paper. And we made it not generic. And I think that um, the team and I are definitely really proud that we made it not generic. Like we really wanted it to like push people's buttons. We wanted people to be uncomfortable because this is the kind of shit that matters. Like if you are working in the community space, whose voice are you centering? Whose intentions are you centering? Whose laws are you centering? Whose culture are you centering? Um, and we really kind of just said, like, the mirror matters. We want people to be able to walk into our libraries and understand that who they are is 100% accepted um, and loved and appreciated. And you can see that in our policy. You can see that in the staff who work here. You can see that in our bilingual, trilingual, like, you know, um, story times. You can see that in the representation of collections. Like, you see it everywhere, not just because we hired a token you know staff member to make sure to like be able to speak a particular language like we actually make sure it's embedded everything and that's where things kind of fell apart it's like you had individuals who are like yes we're like totally culturally diverse in our workplace but then you'd ask if they had paperwork that backed it up or council documents that backed it up or any kind of policies and it was just it not all like not often it's like i think there's so much room to just do better and i think there's nothing wrong with saying let's do better let's improve because every day you learn something new you can do better so why is that something that is the focus and and there's an impetus and there's like a, almost a council sort of recognized need for, for for us to talk about diversity and then when we have issues where we bring up neutrality in libraries as well as in other glam organizations which is a phrase that you do hear a lot but that actually becomes problematic for the same employers, the same council groups, the same organizations that were really pushing the diversity thing. So, you know, like when you were talking about gay marriage in libraries, a lot of public libraries were not able to actually put the word yes on the rainbow colored background. We could have the rainbow colored background, but not the word yes. And some people couldn't even have the rainbow colored background. Yeah. You know, all of this. And so why, why is the conversation around hiring you know, a more diverse workforce, okay, but the conversation around um, the fact that libraries and this sense of neutrality that we've been told that we have is actually an incorrect, in my opinion, and many others, you know, way to think about it. And I just, I find that such a weird dichotomy, a weird position, yeah. to, you know, for both things to be held. And I'm gonna let you answer a weird question now. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, yeah, it's a question slash statement. I don't, I don't know exactly the answer to, the way that you asked your question which is why can we do it one way and it's okay to do the social justice work in one space but then the moment it becomes a different type of social justice work people are like oh no 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 no, we don't want to offend anybody we must be neutral and have no opinion whatsoever 
I don't fucking get it. And I'd be curious to know if, if there is research somewhere and I've yet to find it. If as identity politics like skyrocketed in the US, because unfortunately, especially in library land, a lot of people look to the ALA um, and they also look to how other practices, especially here in Australia, sorry, Australians, we tend to follow everybody else and what we do. Um, so like, you know, we look to Europe or we look to the UK or we look to the US and kind of go, where's the modeling happening? Let's follow that. Um, Sometimes, yeah, they've figured out some really cool fucking awesome best practice, but sometimes it doesn't apply to our system. I'd be curious to really know when did that word neutrality even start getting used? And was it around the time that identity politics started to really rear its ugly, nasty head? Because identity politics, and I'm probably going to piss a lot of people off when I say this, is divisive. Yes, it does give people who have never had a chance to have a voice, who have never been able to have a label in society that ever suited them, that ever, ever gave them the right to actually exist. They now have that label, right? They now have something to identify by. However, it's been, I think, all those tiny nuanced labels and all those tiny nuanced identities that gave humanity to people and dignity to their experiences has been completely overshadowed by two choices. You're either left slash liberal, slash progressive, slash like for the people, or you're right, you're a conservative, racist, like economic, like hoarding, greedy, whatever, whatever. And it got really diluted into two things. And I think, unfortunately, by doing that, like that, I think, fucked libraries up. Because all of a sudden, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to upset your grandma over here who comes to libraries to read the papers, who unfortunately grew up in a time when you could use all the nasty words about people. And yeah, she knows, like, oh, no, no, no I like my black people. I've got some black friends. But then she still drops the wrong phrases or whatever. Um, so you don't want to offend those old people. You don't want to make them feel like they're not welcome. And on the flip side, you don't want to let any of those 19-year-old, like, Antifa-loving kind of types over here on the left hear you letting the old lady get away with it. So you play this, like, weird middle ground. I think it's all fucking caca. Like, it's all bullshit, unfortunately. I think if you work in public libraries, you by default have said that you are for people. You are for humanity and you are for the uplifting of humanity. Like Carnegie, when he first started finding libraries, it was about the uplifting of the lower class of people who were uneducated, particularly men at that time. Of course, those first libraries were for education purposes. It was for uplifting so that people, when they went to vote, could know what they were voting for. They could read the ballot. They could actually participate in society. It was about civic development. And I feel like when we use the word neutrality, we're actually completely undermining that initial um, kind of uh, core value that libraries, public libraries were about, which was educating people. I think it's really important that you don't take a political party into a library space. If you're gonna invite somebody from the Greens, you gotta invite a liberal and you've gotta invite a Labour Party member. You've got to invite everybody. That I think is where things have to be as balanced as possible. But when it comes to social justice, i.e. people issues, when it comes to humanitarian issues, there is no place for a library to say they have no opinion. It's our responsibility as people working in public libraries to actually set the boundaries, to set the code standard of behavior. And most public libraries have these huge, like, this is how you use a library-like statement, and it's all about making people feel welcome and stuff. I'm sorry, put your foot down. If somebody's going to come in and look up Nazi shit on the computer or call somebody who has to use a cane to walk rickety sticks man or whatever, like, and I've by the way, that's a very specific example that somebody actually said to me and I said, how dare you? Like, that is inappropriate. 
we need to call that shit out. I'm sorry, it's 2020. There is no reason for us to be having language or behaviors in the library that are from the 1920s. No, we're not gonna possibly change someone's mind, but we can at least let them know that there's a standard of basic courtesy and behavior that should be expressed in the library space. And um, all we're doing is a disservice to anybody around that hears us not standing up for the common good and for the middle ground, i.e. not neutrality, but for the middle ground, which most people, they wanted same-sex marriage. Most people want recognition of indigenous people in the constitution. Most people want the Illuru statement of the heart to actually fucking move forward. Most people want there to be a recognition that indigenous people have been oppressed and genocided and massacred throughout history. Like, there's nothing wrong with actually making sure that we stand our ground. And neutrality completely allows for silence. And we know that silence is a sign of complicity. And there is a huge problem in that, a huge problem. Um, and it also means that our neutrality, if that's what we're gonna claim that public libraries have, um, especially in the space of state libraries, we claim neutrality, then we're giving the right for white voices, white men from fucking hundreds of years ago who stole artifacts off of native land, who stole stories off of native land, and now are still using those artifacts and those stories to tell their stories in their own white voices. It gives them permission to keep doing that really terrible cyclical thing. And I mean, we, you and I, because we, you've worked in with New Cardigan and you do all that space around the glam sector, you would have heard more about this than I have. But it's just like the importance of like, essentially we are doing the massive disservice by claiming anywhere that there's neutrality in public libraries or libraries generally. There is no room for neutrality anymore. I think, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the language seeps in. And so, you know, I've worked for amazing managers who, who, have said this to me about libraries and neutral spaces so blah we can't do this that or the other and what they're saying we can't do is not actually it doesn't make sense when when you have a council that has voted yes so why can't we be proud of that and you know but oh no libraries are neutral but we're not then being neutral what we're doing is raising up the default as a standard instead of what we want and what we should be yeah. Anyway, yeah. I could go on and on and on, and we have, yeah. and so, we have so much more to talk about. <laughs> we do, we do, we do. So we'll crack on. But thank you so much because I think it's a really interesting discussion to have, and I'm really, really pleased that we could we could have that and share that with people yes. as well. But let's get to the whole point that I started this podcast in the first place because I love matching books to delicious things. And so I asked you to think about two of your favorite books and what you would pair to eat or drink with those books. So let's have it. Let's get your first pick. So. I had to, when you asked me about this, I really had to think about it because I just don't have a favorite book. Like I'm such a moody reader, but I was like, okay, but what, what, what is the common thread through everything that I love reading? And it's not, and quite often it's not just an entertainment factor. Like I, I um, have always chosen books or like chosen authors who really start to make me think. Um, I don't find it tiring. I know that some people find it exhausting to be absorbing so much information, but if nobody can tell yet, I talk fast, I think fast, I produce fast, I work fast. Um, and I'm lucky that I don't make too many mistakes in that kind of that space. Um, it just kind of functions well for me. And so, you know, in high school, I was uh, privileged enough. I went to all into all public schools, but I was privileged enough to go to a school that actually had international baccalaureate. And we read a lot of really intense books for high schoolers. So in year 10, I think it was, if not year 11, we were studying alienation and isolation in society. And of course it was through a post-colonial lens. It was always through the, what's really going on in the bigger context. 
Thank you, Michelle Obama, for reminding us that. It's always about context. Nothing is in existence in a vacuum, right? Um, so anyway, we did 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And I was so in love with that book. I'd never come across magical realism before. Now, I'm a lit major, so I'm going to drop all this kind of language. So I, I don't apologize, but just FYI, this is what's coming. Um, uh, and I was just so in love with the book. Like, it was... It was fucking stunning um so it had the family legacy thing so if you're into like family stories and drama and all that kind of stuff like it was really great for that but for me what I found really fascinating was this um it was the magical realism like for him to be able to tell a highly intense political story to tell the story of conquest and colonialism to tell the story of post-colonialism and the decay that actually happens in societies when colonial masters and businesses and CEOs and stuff fuck off and take the money with them and what happens to those families and the communities as a result. It's almost like he needed to do it with that layer of this um, almost uh, fantastical fantasy to it. But of course, the, the beauty of magical realism, which is very strongly a Caribbean, uh, Latin American kind of writing style, is it's almost possible. Like you're like, maybe it did actually rain flowers like that's kind of cool like oh my gosh thankfully he creates a family map at the start of the book so you can keep track of all the people um there's you know all the isms are covered in in the topics of it and it's um and it's a military story it's a post-colonial story it's the story of white people coming down to take lands so they can grow bananas make a ton of money and then they fuck off and then literally the decay that happens after it and how the family eats itself alive essentially like how everything rots and there's so much and a lot of the language a lot of imagery is of you know when flowers are really overripe like flowers are still beautiful but you can tell they're about to die and it's that really pungent smell you can smell that smell through the whole book and it's just it's such a visceral read and so it really stuck with me it's just one of those books that um because of that i read all his other books but i was that kind of nerd so like <laughs> i was and so me studying lit was i was really super lucky all the classes i took and all the studies i did around literature were very much had that post-colonial frame cross cross-culturalism you know if, if there's a black character in the book and is written by a white author what does that mean like we were studying tony morrison's critical essays in university and that informed so much of my understanding of black America and it's amazing what reading can do for you like and you don't have to read nonfiction to get these stories to get the aha moments to get the mirror pulled up in front of your face um, and it doesn't have to be a black story per se to understand the necess necessity of anti-racist work it can be a Latin American story it can be an Indian story it can be a story um, pretty much of any any community that's been oppressed by uh, colonialism, which is usually oppression from white culture. But anyway, so yeah, that's my first book. And I would totally drink that, by the way, with a red vermouth on ice and a nice slice of lemon, which I drank my way through Spain with, by the way. And it is just the best fucking drink in the world, especially in summertime. So that sticky, sweet, saccharine, vermouthy thing that you get only with a red vermouth that's got a touch it's, like a, it's almost like a sherry, but it's not there. And the lemon kind of cuts the sweetness a touch. That very much is 100 years of solitude. Like there's this like citrus sharp kind of like tart edge, but it's very saccharine. And, and I don't mean the story is saccharine. I just mean everything is, very, is on the verge of rot. It's very sweet smelling in 100 years of solitude. Everybody's rotting in that book, but in a very proverbial 
again, signifying like everything has a double, triple meaning. I love it. And it sounds like the perfect drink as well. Like it sounds like you, hey, you you need something with a bit of a a kick to just sort of like wake you up, get you through kind of (laughs) as well. But like, yeah, it sounds not something I would choose to drink normally as well. Like a red vermouth. That's um, such an interesting Okay, I'm totally doing like a plug here, but um, Blackheart and Sparrow currently have a really nice red vermouth and it's only like $33 from Spain. And it's, um, it's a mixture of Pedro Jimenez and a couple other things. Like, and it's just, it's, I accidentally drank more than I realized. Like say, you know, when you look back at the bottle and you go, oh, I actually drank that much the night before. Like it's actually way too easy. Malaga, um, when we were in Malaga, Spain, there was a restaurant that had them in like a margarita glass and danger well yes. danger. Yeah. i love it it sounds divine it does it sounds really good and again i haven't actually read 100 years of solitude it's one of those books i think That's it was done the year before me or it was the year after me and i was like aware of it but just never picked it up um but yes i will get there there's just so many great books in the world but absolutely it's something to do All right, my turn for a little bit. I don't like to make my guests do all the work, so I've chosen a book as well. This is actually the first book which really woke me up to a lot of truths about race. And, you know, this is from an American perspective, but it actually has helped me looking at Australia as well. So it's Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And what it is, in essence, is a beautiful beautifully written letter from father to son but it's actually something that embraces us all um so the story of race in america is quite simple the story of black bodies exploited through slavery and segregation and today threatened locked up and murdered out of all proportion as we are seeing currently Um, so this book talks about what it is like to inhabit a black body and find a way to live within it and how can we all honestly reckon with this fraught history and free ourselves from its burden So this book is an attempt to answer these questions in a letter to the author's adolescent son. So Ta-Nehisi Coates shares with his son and with the readers the story of his awakening to the truth about his place in the world through a series of, to him, revelatory experiences. Beautifully woven from personal narrative, reimagined history and fresh emotionally charged reportage, this book clearly illuminates the past confronts the present and offers a transcendent vision for a way forward. I, it was written in 2015 and I read it in 2015 and I was blown away. It's really not a difficult book to read. It is hard though to hear the words that are, you know, on the pages to read those words. What it did was it led me to many, many more books and lots from Australian writers tackling these issues. Um, Stan Grant wrote Talking to My Country, essentially as an Australian version of Ta-Nehisi Coates' book. Um, it led me to Aileen Morton Robinson, Talking Up to the White Woman, which I started, but it is, it's quite dense and academic in a lot of ways. So even though it is accessible, it's taken me longer. Otherwise, I would have talked about that today. Um, but I think that Ta-Nehisi Coates has done something truly, truly wonderful in, it's a really accessible read. I... Um, it, it woke me up. It really woke me up to recognizing the fact. Uh, I think you mentioned that, you know, you're talking about mirrors before this book held up a mirror to me and it made me think about my society and where, how I've grown up and, and my understanding of race in Australia, which was very limited for a long time, far too long, really. Um, so yeah, it's definitely um, a book that you need something cold, something sharp to go with. So I suggested a cold vodka soda with fresh lime. Um, so definitely something that'll take the edge off as well as being being a bit sharp it's sippable it's cold and easy to drink whilst you read words which are difficult emotional and sometimes painful so Tanahasi Coates Between the World and Me is my 
suggestion today. Lovely. <laughs> it's really interesting, like talking about this idea, because I know Justine, because we've known each other a while through work and then after work, um, that you lived in the UK for some time. Um, and, it, and I don't know if by being in the UK and being somewhere else, and then when you came back to Australia, you had a counterculture moment. Um, I, when I first came to Australia, it was in 2004, and I flew into Sydney, and I went to university in Wollongong. And I get admonished for that all the time, like, oh, Leonie, that's not exactly the best city to, like, judge Australia by. But in reality, I think it was the best city to actually judge the majority of the way people behaved and thought, because instead of hiding white theory, white thinking, white-centric privileged kind of behaviors that kind of wore it on their sleeve. I'm not saying that everybody in Wollongong was racist, but it was very confrontational, the way that some of the people were actually treated and the way that the people had it so peppered in their language, their vocalized language of um, how they thought and believed and perceived Aboriginal people especially. Um, but I remember first landing in Australia, getting out in Sydney, driving down, and walking around Wollongong, again, not the most multicultural city, but still, and just thinking, where the fuck are all the black people? Like I, growing up in America, I grew up in a predominantly African-American community. Like my schooling was predominantly African-American. I was quite often the minority, not until high school, did it kind of, did the, the numbers switch. And we had like the token black kid, like you would in some like high school musical film or something like that, which is awful, by the way. Like, um, so I actually really struggled with how white it was. I didn't actually understand and I couldn't actually comprehend the whiteness. It was really, it was really uncomfortable for me. And I actually just kept thinking to myself, this is wrong. This doesn't feel right. This is so, this is so um, inhumane, I guess. And I, I don't know exactly I don't know exactly how else to explain it without starting to get really judgy of Australia, but it obviously is a reflection of the migration policy. It's a reflection of the immigration policy. It's a reflection of what happened to 100% of the population being Aboriginal to now it only being 3% of the population. But also like what happens to those communities who do migrate here, who are communities of color, be it black people, brown people, whatever, um, and where they end up having to choose to live so that they feel like their lives are safer. So it's really interesting that you had that experience uh, reading with Tana Hisi Coates. I think everybody needs to have their mirror moment. I, I would love to think that it's not because of something more dramatic than reading a book or just traveling to another country. Like I hope it would have a pleasurable thing attached to it. But sometimes I think we do need to be shocked awake into what is really going on in the world. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, I had moments beforehand with travel and I think that's something that yes. people do, but I hadn't yes. really applied those moments that I had. I had certain moments of recognition, but then, yeah, reading this book and I just suddenly went, oh, dear, I need to do some work here. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, hopefully hopefully, parts of this conversation will help other people have, have that thought process too. I don't know. Such interesting conversation, Leonie, but I'm going to get to you to talk to me now about your yeah. second book pairing that you'd like to share with us today. Great. So the other one, and again, just keeping, um, keeping the topic, but also because this is a really fucking fantastic book and I keep telling everybody, you have to read this, you have to read this, you have to read this. Books that are nonfiction or a bit more academic can sometimes alienate people when they're trying to read. There's nothing wrong with fiction. And fiction often is the best gateway to human stories because they use storytelling as a way to really cover really intense topics. Um, and so I'm just gonna keep writing this whole books with lots of layers of meaning kind of train and talk about um, uh, Tara June Winch's book, The Yield. 
Um, so it was published last year. It's won a ton of awards, as it should. Um, I don't think I've seen a rating of any reviewers that is below like four and a half stars for it. It is harrowing, as it should be, um, because it is an indigenous story. It is about white corporate interest, white culture, uh, white missionary culture, um, and all the trigger warnings that you could possibly think of. Like, all of it, like, that has happened. If, you, if you've watched any indigenous story in film, if you've, like, even slightly paid attention to any indigenous history in Australia, like, this book kind of touches on all of those kind of topics. Um, but she does it in a way that is just so fucking elegant and so eloquent. And she actually worked with um, Stan Grant's dad to integrate... Rurudgery. I have to. It's not Rurundjeri as down in here in Victoria, but Rurudgery. So the inn is not there. It's two different, um, two different tribes. Um, integrate Rurudgery language into the book, and she provides like a glossary slash dictionary in the back, so that you can actually get an idea. So, yes, if you were just like you know your mom or your grandma reading the book, you would find it really beautiful. You'd find it engaging and hopefully we'd have all the feelings and you would think twice about it. But for people who want that extra layer, this book is actually reminding us that stripping of language, stripping of culture, stripping of permission to be on your own land, which is everything that's happened to all the indigenous cultures across Australia, it actually takes away the dignity and it takes away the core of what makes a group of people those people like you, ISIS got a lot of a lot of flack for blowing up museums and blowing up universities across Syria and other um, uh, countries around Syria as they were invading countries because they were destroying culture and the white world was like oh my god you're destroying culture this is a history of a people sorry that's exactly what's happened here in Australia and that's explored throughout Tara June Winch's book The Yield um, but it's told through the perspective of the main character named August who um, you know escapes quote-unquote this small town country area that she grew up in to go live in Europe because she's trying to just get away as far away as possible from the whole thing all the traumas all the stuff that's going on with her family um, and but she ends up going home because her grandfather her puppy has actually died and it's told in different um, timelines and it's told in different voices so one chapter will be from her perspective which is the now another chapter will be like almost like you're reading a letter from her granddad or her puppy writing to her but he's actually writing to his whole community um, and then another chapter is a white missionary from the area who actually established a mission and I believe he was a Jesuit and I'm not saying that missionaries were all bad or all good or whatever the Jesuits were a little bit more human-centered they were always known for that even in America that chapter that guy is very much like a, a white savior but again if you know this kind of stuff it's a white savior complex he's still trying to teach white culture to these indigenous mob, as it were. But at the same time, like, he's also like, holy shit, like, what's going on in the government? It's really fucking shit. So the book is, is fucking fantastic. Like, if you don't know anything about indigenous history, this is the book to read, I think. If you're unwilling to, like, really dive in too deep, if you're not ready for uh, Bruce Pascoe, if you're not ready for Stan Grant, I think The Yield was a really great book that through amazing highly highly skilled storytelling and just beautiful writing like I it's so poetic it's just 
it's so pretty and you really feel like you're in this small country town. I feel like it's like New South Wales or something like that um, because there's a scene where they go to the New South Wales State Library and a museum to try to find some of the artifacts that were stolen from their land um, because they discover some stuff in the house as they're trying to clean up after her granddad's death. And of course they find files and they keep realizing, like basically they realize if they can prove language, if they can prove civilization, basically, which is so fucking shit. If they can prove this, then maybe they can save their land from the big corporate daddies who want to like install gas and like coal crap. So there's like so many layers to this book. So if you care about feminism, this book is for you. If you care about the climate, this book is for you. If you can care about indigenous issues, this book is definitely for you. And if you just care about like family and you care about um, what it means to be family and dealing with the traumas that often come with family, which can be everything from rape to murder, like this book is actually just a really um, harrowing but very beautiful telling of a very important story to honor what the book is talking about. And I think to honor like what it's all about, like, and because there are so many layers and there are, there is content that can be like a bit confrontational and there's, and there's stuff that um, there's just a lot of sadness in the book, but there's a lot of hope, which is what really good writing provides you is it doesn't leave you totally bereft, but you feel bereftness through the reading. Um, Honestly, I can't imagine drinking anything with it except like a chamomile tea. <laughs> like you, it's almost like you need to like, you need to sip it while you go. Like, or maybe if you really wanted to have a hot toddy, but just something that has that herbal soothing aspect to it that keeps you warm while you're reading because it's, um, it's a big mirror, I think, for Australia. Like she doesn't shy from like talking about the museums. She doesn't shy from talking about the big corporate daddies who keep trying to take over land. She doesn't shy from any of it. And it all, it's not like she's doing it tokenistically. It all seamlessly is written through that story and it all ties in perfectly. And you just realize, fuck, this is happening to every community, not just this particular one for this story, but all across Australia. Chamomile tea sounds like the way to go for sure. I love a good chamomile tea. I had one earlier today and, and I'm definitely going to remember that when I'm reading this book. It sounds like it's almost necessity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that, oh my God, it was such an interesting conversation. I have loved hearing about your favorite books and their perfect pairings, but also about your experiences in libraries as well. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, Leonie. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really um, hope that people get something out of this. And, and of course, like, you know how to find Justine. She's all over fucking internet, like, cause she's like the queen. Um, but I'm also like on Instagram and LinkedIn, LinkedIn probably is like the best place to find me. Like if you've got any questions, please don't hesitate to ask, but I just want to quickly make a point to say, like, I'm not an academic in like a traditional sense. Like I don't have a PhD. I'm not at university teaching anything about diversity, inclusion, anti-racism or any of that stuff. However, I care. I care a lot. And I've got a lot of books up my sleeve and documentaries. So if you feel like I'm a safe person to ask more about this, please don't hesitate to get in touch. I'm happy to be that person because um, right now I think we need as many people asking the right, like just being okay to ask the questions, be a bit vulnerable and just be like, how can I find out more? Um, yeah, you can just Google the shit out of it, but it can sometimes get a bit overwhelming using Google. Like it gives you a thousand results and what was it, Neil Gaiman, who said, like, you need, like, Google will give you a thousand results, but then the librarian will give you the right one. So I think that's really apt at the moment. Like, if it's not me or Justine, definitely just go talk to a bloody librarian and have a chat about what you can possibly read just to get yourself a little bit more um, aware of what's going on in the world right now.
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I can vouch for Leonie as a safe person in a safe space. So by all means, get in touch and myself as well. Well, that is all from me, folks. Remember, as she said, you can follow Leonie on Instagram at Leonie Ariel. That's L-E-O-N-E-E-A-R-I-E-L. And check her out on LinkedIn also. And do let me know if you have any suggestions for who you'd like me to speak with for some delicious book pairings next. You can find Literary Elixirs on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Literary Elixirs. And if you're interested in more information, such as notes and photos from each episode, check out literaryelixirs.com. Enjoy all Elixirs responsibly. And remember, books go with pretty much anything.